For the rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark 15. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 32. It's page 852 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. I encourage you to read along with us. Again, Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. Now, when I say the word excruciating, what comes to your mind? What is it that you think of when you hear that word excruciating? I'm guessing that most of you would immediately respond pain, right? Those two words just seem to go together, excruciating pain. That's what we think about, right? But let me ask you this. What has been the most excruciating experience of your life? Think about it. What has caused you the most pain? What has caused you the most suffering? What has been the most excruciating thing you have ever experienced? Now, obviously, I'm not looking for coy answers like my stats test or my hangnail or listening to you preach, right? I'm looking for serious things. What has been the most excruciating experience of your life? Now, some of you would answer that question by talking about physical pain. For some of you, maybe that was childbirth. Seems like a pretty painful ordeal. I've, I've kind of taken a you know, a sideline approach to that whole deal. I know that it's bad, but I don't know what it's like, right? For some of you, maybe it's, um, maybe you were in a terrible car accident or maybe you had some really painful medical procedure that was necessary, but it caused all sorts of pain and hardship for a long time. Jen, she's here. She, maybe her most painful experience was she fell off a horse, right? Or, uh, you know, like maybe you suffer from chronic pain that just plagues you every day. For others, you would have answered that question, what has been the most excruciating experience of your life with these painful, lingering stories of humiliation and mocking? The pain you suffer is just this deep, burning, emotional pain. Maybe it was something you experienced in junior high, because let's face it, junior high was hard on everybody. I mean, we all have stories of how, how painful junior high was. But some of you carry burdens of relational hurt. Someone that you trusted, someone that you love, they've broken your heart and they've just kind of left you grieving. Maybe you lost someone very dear to you. You've watched them wither away in a hospital and then they've died and they're gone. For some of you, You bear this awful weight of shame because of some hidden sin in your life. And it eats at your soul. It's like David talks about in Psalm 32 that your bones waste away in keeping this to yourself. And for some of you, it was the abuse that you endured at the hands of another. Someone that you loved and trusted has violated you. And they've neglected you. They've run you down. You know, often it is this type of pain, this emotional type of pain, that has the most longest lasting effects in our life. 
You know, I mean, I was in a really bad car accident when I was 17. Got really banged up, you know, just really messed with me. I still have neck and back pain. I, my elbow, my left elbow doesn't work right. But that is nothing compared to the emotional hurt that I endured growing up. I mean, there's nothing like it. And, and it comes out of nowhere, this throbbing, this aching that, that Motrin or ibuprofen can't take away. I'm sure we all have stories. I'm sure we all have stories of pain. Things in our lives that were just utterly excruciating. And for one reason or another, they plague us and they seem to cover us with shame. But I have to tell you, there is hope. There's unbelievable hope. Do you know where this word excruciating comes from? It comes from the Latin word excruciatus which means from the cross. (laughs) It means from the cross. And this morning as we look at Mark 15, verses 16 through 32, we will see that Jesus has experienced the most pain, the most ridicule, the most shame that, that you could even imagine so that you and I can be freed from ours. You see, Jesus endured pain and ridicule in fulfillment of Scripture, to save others rather than himself. It's the main idea of the sermon. We're just going to be unpacking that as we go. So if you want to read along with me, again, it's page 852 in the Bibles of your chairs, Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. It says, And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming up from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one at his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
This morning we're just dealing with this main idea. Jesus endured pain and ridicule in fulfillment of Scripture to save others rather than himself. So first of all, we need to explore and dig into the pain and ridicule that Jesus endured. Now to understand Jesus' pain and ridicule, we have to think back. We have to think about the story that Mark tells us on the whole. That Jesus had come seemingly from nowhere preaching and teaching. He had performed signs and wonders, all sorts of miracles, so that even very early on in his ministry, thousands of people were gathered around as interested followers, but only few were true disciples of Jesus. We learn early on in chapter 3, that he's gaining the attention of people throughout the land. They're coming from the north and the south and the east and the west, all gathered around this polyplethora that want to see Jesus and kind of be fascinated by what he does. And it draws the attention of the people in power, the people of prominence, the political and, and religious leaders, and they begin to fear him. And so early on, they began planning Jesus' death. And as Jesus ministered among the people for three years, he was intentional with his disciples to teach them. And he began to tell them about his impending suffering and death and resurrection. Even early on, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. And he told them all along the way. And through it all, though they couldn't see it, they didn't make sense of it. They they, they were hard-hearted. They couldn't believe Jesus was slowly leading them towards his own death. Every footstep drawing closer and closer and closer to that fated day. In all ways, he was faithfully submitting himself to the will of his heavenly Father. But if we're going to really understand Jesus' pain and ridicule here, we have to actually start the night before he died. It was then that he told his disciples that one of them would betray him, that Peter, his closest friend, would deny him three times. And that night as he led them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed in agony, just sweating drops of blood, every one of his predictions proved true. As he was seeking to remain faithful to his father's will, and no sooner than his prayer ended that we see Judas Iscariot arrives to betray Jesus. And how does he do it? He betrays him with a kiss, calling him rabbi. I can't help but see that as a mockery. He was taken captive and led before the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin for that matter, and they're mocking him and they're beating him and they're condemning him. Peter's outside denying him three times. Then they lead him to the Roman governor, Pilate, to stand trial before him. Pilate, though he knows that Jesus is absolutely innocent, cowers in fear because he doesn't want the people to riot against Rome. And so he gives in to their requests and he has Jesus scourged and then delivers him over to be crucified. All this while, Jesus is being mocked and beaten, unjustly treated, though he committed no sin. No deceit was in his mouth. Now, I'm guessing that because of the conveniences of modern entertainment, what once was really lost on us as far as understanding Jesus' pain has now been made pretty vividly clear. 
where words like scourging and flogging or crucifixion, we really had no idea what those things were. They've suddenly become realities. We, we get a glimpse of that ghastly horror because of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Has anyone here not seen that movie? Okay, there are a few of you. I will tell you right off, it is not for the faint of heart. But it is worth enduring sometime. Not that I agree with everything in it. All right, he might have been a little dramatic, slightly overdone. You've got those stations of the cross in there, which is kind of annoying. But my biggest problem with it is that it doesn't explain why. The only explanation of why happens in the very introduction, like the first five seconds when Isaiah 53, 6 is placed up there on the screen before the whole thing goes down. Okay? But in terms of catching a visual, striking reality, the portrayal of these ghastly horrors that had once eluded us suddenly made real, it is great for that. I mean, we can now get this picture of just how painful Jesus' suffering really was. Jesus was flogged. That means that he was beaten with rods. Often 39 times. I mean, could you imagine? Right? Beaten with rods. Jesus was scourged. Scourging happens when they take this whip with multiple tails on the end of it, and it has bone shards or metal fragments that are tied to the end, and so that when it struck the person, it would actually stick into their flesh and rip it away. And they would hit them all over, not just on their back, but all over their body. Sometimes hitting their head, sometimes hitting their legs and their arms, all over. There was no end to this. People often died as a result of scourging. And then there's the whole crown of thorns. I'm like, that honestly is like the least painful thing that Jesus endured. Right? Placing that on his head. But we see just how painful it would have been as they struck him on the head, driving those thorns into his flesh. Suddenly we realize just how difficult it would have been for Jesus to, after having faced such brutality, to have to carry his cross through the streets and up the hill to Golgotha. Now, whether or not he carried this cross beam, you know, we, get, we know what a cross looks like, right? Some people debate, okay, was it a cross beam or did he carry the entire cross? I don't think it really matters. If it was a cross beam, which is just the horizontal part, right, that was 100 pounds in and of itself. If it was the vertical and the horizontal, the cross as we understand it, then it was more than that. But Jesus had suffered so much, he wasn't able to do it. He physically did not have the strength to carry that cross up the hill to his death. And so verse 21 tells us that they compelled this passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. When they got to the cross, they offered him wine and myrrh. Now, perhaps this was a sedative to take away some of the pain that would be, would, would be inflicted as they drove the nails into him. But it also could have been a stimulant and that it allowed him to face more pain and actually experience more suffering. We don't really know why they did it. In verse 24, Mark makes this simple statement. And they crucified him. That doesn't really tell us much about it, Mark. According to Cicero, the crucifixion was a cruel and disgusting penalty, the worst extreme of tortures inflicted upon slaves. It was something left for the worst of the worst. 
Josephus called it the most pitiable of all deaths. It was utterly horrendous. It was an absolute torturous way to die. We learn from John 20 and Luke 22 and Colossians 2 that Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. His hands extended outward. Whether they drove these nails through his hands or through his forearms, you can imagine the unbelievable pain. And we're not talking about like three-inch you know, nails that we use. We're talking about spikes. His feet would either been turned like this, and one nail driven through them, kind of on this post, or sometimes what they would do is actually have them straddle the vertical post and drive two different nails, one through each of the back of the heels, so that they were kind of like this. Each time Jesus would want to take a breath, he would have to pull up on his hands and on his feet against the nails, lacerations on his back, rubbing against the rough wood. Every single moment, every breath that he took was excruciating pain. Oftentimes they would pull the arms so far or the weight would be so much that your arms would actually come out of socket. But often because no major artery was severed by the nails or by the scourging, a prisoner could actually suffer for days before finally dying of shock or asphyxia or heart failure. Stories are told of men that actually survived for days. And at that point, the birds and the animals began to feast on them while they were still alive. It was utterly horrible. This was the worst way to die. The most pain that you could experience. And that's what Jesus endured. What's interesting is that Mark doesn't focus on that at all. He just states the simple facts. Jesus was scourged. Jesus carried his cross. Jesus was crucified. For us in our day and age, we would have been helped by a little bit more description, Mark. Thanks a lot. <laughs> right? But instead, Mark focuses solely on Jesus' humiliation. Look again at the text. Look up at verses 16 through 20. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Just in case you're wondering where Pilate stood on Jesus, remember, it was, verse 15 tells us that it was Pilate who had Jesus scourged. It was Pilate who delivered him over to be crucified. This torture and mockery happened in Pilate's palace, the governor's headquarters in verse 16, and it was Pilate who put up the inscription of condemnation that Jesus was king of the Jews and fastened it to his cross. But look again at the mocking that Jesus endured. Verse 16 says that they called together the whole battalion. Now, if Mark is being literal here, which I think that he is, a battalion is 600 soldiers. 600 
soldiers. That's larger than my hometown. I couldn't even imagine my home, my old, my whole hometown just turning against me in mockery. And it says that they all participated in deriding Jesus. Some clothed him in a purple cloak. Now, this was not a, like, though purple was the color of royalty, this was no nice robe, right? This was probably like a carpet that they draped over Jesus. It says that they began to, they placed this crown of thorns on his head. They began to sarcastically salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And when that was no longer enough, they began to strike him on the head and spit on him. And kneel down in sarcastic homage to Jesus. Could you imagine? 600 soldiers treating Jesus, the Son of God, this way. Now again, I'm sure we all have humiliating stories, right? I, I mean, I... In junior high, I got to pantsed in front of a co-ed basketball team. You know, like we were there at co-ed practice, you know, and he didn't just get the pants. You understand what I'm saying? But there's nothing like this. Nothing like this. They stripped him and put the cloak on him. When they finished mocking him, they put his clothes back on him. It says in verse 20, when they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the cloak and they put his own clothes back on him and they led him out to be crucified. And this was a walk of shame. The convicted would have to carry their cross through the streets. They would take them down the most public streets that they could find on the way to the cross. And as they would go, people would mock them and insult them. They would throw things at them. Sometimes they would beat them. And along the way, the the, the soldiers would also flog and scourge them as they went. This was a parade of humiliation. At times, the prisoners did this naked. I don't think Jesus was right here because it says he put his clothes back on him. But that happened at times. Absolute humiliation. Crucifixions always took place in a very public place outside the city, perhaps along a main road or high on a hill so that everyone could see. And if they weren't already naked by that time, at that point they were stripped of all their clothing. Perhaps... Out of because of Jewish sensibilities and respect towards the Jews, Jesus was allowed a loincloth. But many were crucified completely naked. Stripped and laid bare and hung on the cross for all to see. Regardless, on either side of Jesus, there were two guilty men. Now, Mark calls them robbers, but remember, that's the same word for insurrectionist. And I can't help but wonder if these two men, on Jesus' right and Jesus' left, were companions of Barabbas. Maybe they were guilty of the same thing that Barabbas was guilty for, and in Barabbas' place, there was Jesus. Down in verse 29, it says, And those who passed by on the road derided Jesus. They were wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
These people were heading into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They were there to worship God. And along the way, they, they took the opportunity to mock the once famous, now infamous Jesus. And to twist his words and to twist his meaning in order to show their utter disdain for him. Also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified along with him, the guilty men who were dying right beside Jesus also reviled him. And Mark's point in all of this is to show us that everyone was against Jesus. He was mocked by all. Everyone scoffed at him, from the Roman soldiers, all 600 of them, to those who passed by on the road, from the religious leaders who had planned his death, to the very men who hung next to him on crosses. They all mocked him. All were guilty of deriding the Son of God. All were guilty of insulting the Christ. All were guilty of reviling the King. Not just the King of Israel, but the sovereign King over all. And it's interesting there in verse 29, that, ver- that word deriding, that word means blaspheming. All right? So they had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. But yet here they are in turn blaspheming against him. Friends, no matter how much shame and humiliation you have faced in your life, there's there's nothing like this. Nothing like this. I'm not trying to minimize your pain in any way. Right? Pain is painful. And I feel for you. But could you imagine this happening to you? Could you imagine the shame And the utter disgrace, the indignity, the humiliation. And this was no mere man. This was Jesus. This was the Son of God, the Christ, the one whom they had seen teach with authority, the one whom they had seen perform signs and wonders and miracles that only God could do. The one whom they knew was completely innocent and didn't deserve any of it. Never has there been a greater scandal, a greater injustice than this. The perfectly righteous Son of God, degraded and disgraced as the lowest and worst of society. And when we truly look upon the pain and ridicule of Christ, friends, it ought to make us weep. It ought to make us pity Him. Our souls ought to cry out how undeserved this humiliation is. How could this happen? Why did this happen? This is unfair. Do you not see it? And then we need to turn and look at ourselves. We need to realize that this is the punishment that my sin deserves. This is what my rebellion has accomplished. 
This is what I have achieved. My sin nailed him to the cross. If you are here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, perhaps you doubt whether he is the Son of God, perhaps you doubt his power to save, perhaps you doubt your even need of him, I pray that this morning you would see yourselves in those who mocked Jesus in verses 29 through 32, those who passed by or the chief priests or scribes who self-righteously derided Jesus because they couldn't see their need of him. That is you. That's all of us. In reality, when we stand in rebellion, we live in rebellion against God, we are like those who are crucified next to Jesus and using our last fleeting breaths to mock the one who is dying to save us. Our life is but moments, and we're using them to scorn the only one who can save. The one who is dying on that cross for sin, though he had no guilt. He's there for you. Friends, let's turn and repent of our sin and follow Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not exempt of this either. You know, when we gather times like this, we sing songs of praise to God about how much we love Jesus and how we honor him as king. We're like those soldiers put a crown upon his head and a cloak around his shoulders. We pay homage to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And we turn and we go home back to our dearly loved sin. And in doing that, all our homage, all our praise, all our worship, the Lord and Savior is nothing more than mocking. It's like taking the reed, striking him on the head. It's like looking face of the Son of God spitting at it. Friends, do not dismiss your sin. Do not. You know what it is. I don't need to point fingers. I don't need to list descriptions. You know what you're dealing with. You know your sin. Stop mocking Jesus in your worship. <laughs> Talk to someone. Guys, this is why we have life transformation groups. This is why we have community groups. This is why we have elders. This is why we covenant together in membership so that we can bear one another's burdens. Friends, deal with this seriously. It is not worth your soul. Do not continue to mock the Lord and Savior that you profess to love. 
And so as usual, my first and longest point is over. Jesus endured pain and ridicule. Second, for this purpose, to fulfill Scripture. You know, sometimes in the midst of our own pain and shame and confusion, it is easy for us to think that God is not there. That he is somehow uninvolved or uncaring or he doesn't know what he's doing. And when we look at this story of Jesus, the Son of God, and his crucifixion, it makes even less sense to us. We, we tend to question whether or not Jesus was real or whether he was truly the Son of God or how on earth his death on the cross has anything to do with me and my current experiences. Have you dealt with that? I talked with a few this week, so I know that it's true. You have. Well, to answer those questions, for us to understand why Jesus had to suffer this kind of pain and this kind of humiliation, we have to go back. We have to start with God. Right? God created the universe because he had a plan, a plan to reveal his glory to his creation. God did not create because he was lonely, because he needed anything, because he, was, he just needed love or whatever. God is not deficient in any way. He is completely glorious. In all of his perfections, God was completely glorious. He had no need of his creation. But yet he did it anyway. Because God in his perfections is so glorious that he is worth sharing. He created for the good of his creation, not for his own. Because you've got to get that. And so he created all things so that they might be filled with him, filled by him. He created all there is, the heavens and the earth, all the animals and plants and fish and birds. And lastly, he created man in his image to bear his name, to reflect his character and his nature and his purposes and even his promises. And things went well for a while. But then Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be like God. So they rebelled against him. And as a result of that, mankind, from then until now, and until the Lord returns, is plagued with this internal desire to rebel against God. To reject him, to try to live their life without him, to try to go it their own way, to live as if this is my world and I'm God. And it should have ended on that day. Do you realize that the just thing to do was for God to strike Adam and Eve dead? He told them that he would. That was justice. That's what was fair. But in his mercy... He didn't allow that to happen. Though they sinned against him and deserved eternal death and eternal separation from God, God did not destroy them, but he sent them out into the wilderness in order to spare them because they could not be in the presence of his holiness. Right? This is why the separation occurs. But God did two things that apply directly to Jesus and then to you and me. First, he made them a promise that one of their far-off grandchildren 
the seed of a woman would crush the seed of the serpent. He would be a victorious conqueror over sin and death. He would defeat Satan. He would defeat temptation. And as God's plan of redemption began to unfold through the many pages of the Old Testament, we learn that this victorious seed was also going to be a blessing from the line of Abraham. We also see that he was going to be a king from the line of David, the king of Israel. And yet the seed of the woman would be bruised by the seed of the serpent. And that leads to the second thing that God did for Adam and Eve. He killed animals and fashioned their fur into clothes to cover them. This was a sacrifice. These animals were sacrificed. God accepted their blood in the place of Adam and Eve, and he used that to cover their shame. And as the plan of redemption unfolded again through the many pages of the Old Testament, we learn of the establishment of the sacrificial system, right? that there was a means of offering substitutes on behalf of the people, these unblemished, perfect sacrifices in, on their behalf. They saw the need of a mediator, an interceder, a priest to stand between them and God. But as the pages began to unfold, we saw that it wasn't enough. The blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin. And so we read in Isaiah, for example, of this coming suffering servant who was unblemished, who was perfect, a man just like you and me, an infinite sacrifice who would atone for sin. This is what we saw, as Caleb read earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53, that this suffering servant would come and suffer and face humiliation in order to take the sin of God's people upon himself. Jesus suffered agony and humiliation and was counted among the transgressors so that the sin and iniquity of many would be laid upon him. And throughout the many, many pages of the Old Testament, we see these themes of atonement and sacrifices of prophet, priest, and king of this suffering servant grow and grow and grow until at this moment in Jesus' life, we see its absolute fulfillment. We see all that God had promised in the many pages of the Old Testament now being fulfilled as Jesus hung on the cross and suffered the shame. Now, through the course of this sermon series, I've pointed to many Old Testament passages that have been alluded to or quoted that, that Mark brings up over and over again. But I tell you, week after week after week after week, I have to let dozens go by. It's actually one of the hardest things for me to do as a preacher. But it's there. And I would encourage you to study these Old Testament passages, study these themes for yourselves. But I just want to look at one specifically. We have to deal with this one today. So keep your finger right there in Mark 15. I want you to flip back to Psalm 22. Okay, finger in Mark 15, back to Psalm 22. Go to look at verses 1 through 18. Jesus actually quotes from this psalm in Mark 15, verse 34, that we'll look at next week. 
But Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18 reads, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, the king of Israel, Jesus' own great, 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 whatever, grandfather, a thousand years before Jesus. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. and They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Friends, do you not see how this passage is fulfilled in what is happening in Mark 15? Do you not see it? Let's keep going. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You've made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. Verse 14. I am poured out like water and my bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Pay attention here at verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Why on earth would David, king of Israel, a thousand years before Jesus, ever say this? As far as we know, his hands and feet were never pierced. Unless it's pointing to something more. Verse 17. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. In verse 18. They divide my garments among them. From my clothing, they cast lots. Friends, this is exactly what happens in Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. Exactly. I had a friend once who, when he became a Christian, received a Bible from his church, and he just began to read it voraciously. He just dug into the thing, tore right into it. He had read most, if not all, of the New Testament, and then he had turned his attention to the Old Testament, and he came to the Psalms, to this very Psalm, Psalm 22. Well, as soon as he was finished, he became very, very concerned, and he actually called up his pastor. He said, Pastor, I mean you no disrespect, but this Bible that you have given me, it has mistakes in it. And the pastor was like, oh, really? How so? And the young man said, well, I found a passage from the New Testament that was mistakenly placed in the Old Testament. 
And the pastor chuckled and he said, oh, really? Well, which one? And it's not that the pastor thought there was mistakes in the Bible or that the printer had improperly bound it. He simply knew that there were so many passages in the Old Testament that applied so directly to Jesus that it's not surprising for a new believer like this man to have thought that they were misplaced. That guy, by the way, was Mark Dever. His book's right over there. You're welcome to it. How could a passage written so many centuries before Jesus ever lived speak so clearly of his life and suffering and his death? Because this was part of God's eternal plan of redemption to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. But in addition to all the Old Testament passages that point to him, Jesus himself had explicitly predicted or pointed to his own betrayal, his condemnation, his mocking, his death and resurrection 12 times in the Gospel of Mark alone, on 12 different occasions. His most explicit prediction was in Mark 10, verses 32 through 34, where he said, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And as we see from our text, everything happened just as Jesus said it would. Everything. You know, on numerous occasions, Jesus told his disciples of how he, was, he had come to fulfill Old Testament scriptures. Even when he was betrayed in, in Mark 14, verse 50, he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. After his death and resurrection, he met up with his disciples and he interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. And he did this as he told them in John chapter 13, verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe that I am he. Friends, if this was just a story, like the hero tales of that time period, The good guy doesn't suffer pain and humiliation and defeat. He doesn't die. He wins. He comes down from the cross. That's what happens in the hero stories. They don't experience pain and scorn. Unless, of course, there's more to this story. It's part of a bigger story. It's part of a planned story. It's part of a prophesied story, a fulfilled story, a glorious story. Story, a true story. This is no fairy tale. This is the historical account of how God is working to redeem a people for himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the third point. That Jesus endured pain and ridicule in fulfillment of Scripture, third, to save others rather than himself. 
Not only was this foretold for thousands and thousands of years that this would happen, just as God said it would, but he did it to save others rather than himself. If this were a hero story like the fables of old, Jesus would have come down from the cross. And that would have been really fantastic. That would have been really impressive. And guess what? You'd still be dead in your sin. Let's look again at verses 29 through 32. It said, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Friends, in their statements, we see blatant misunderstanding about salvation. We see that they just don't get it. They just don't understand. And you know what? It's really easy for us to do the same things. For example, first, they, they misunderstood Jesus' dis- statement about the destruction of the temple. He told them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. I will raise it up. And, and John tells us that he was speaking about his own body. He's telling the people, you will destroy me. You will kill me. And guess what? In three days I'll rise. But they didn't get it. So they began to twist their wor- his own words against him because he wasn't the Savior that they wanted. They could not and would not see a Savior dying, cursed death on a tree. Second, they wanted a Savior who would wow them with feats of power. They wanted displays. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the signs of faith. Right? They wanted, they wanted it proved to them that he was who he was. Coming down from the cross would prove his power to them, power that he could destroy the Romans. But you know what? It's not the power that could defeat sin. Third, we could see that they only wanted salvation from their circumstances and not from their sin. These religious leaders, they mocked him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Well, how did Jesus at this point save others? Well, they're referring to his many healings and perhaps when he cast demons out of people. They saw it merely in terms of of earthly life enrichment, health, wealth, prosperity, and power. That's all they really saw. That's what they thought salvation was, deliverance here in this life, not salvation from sin. They couldn't even understand. They had no concept of their sinful state before God. Fourth, they wanted to follow a political king, not to believe in a Savior and Lord over all. He said, let The Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You prove it to us. What they wanted was a puppet king who would bow down to their requests, who would prove himself to them, who would follow them, not the other way around. They didn't want him. They demanded in order to to see, in order to believe. And fifth, even the condemned men who suffered right alongside him only wanted relief from their current pain, not to be forgiven of their sin. And we know the whole story. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But okay, for now, it's just this is what they're doing. Now, how accurately does this describe us? I mean, just think about it. 
We don't want a savior who would point us to the truth and call us to submit to it. We want a savior who will wow us with his feasts of strength, of his power, one who is sensational, one who is popular. We don't want a Christ who is defeated, who who died to defeat sin and death, but one who would tickle our fancy by showing us just how great he is. We don't want a sacrificial king who would die to reconcile us to God. We want a servant who will bow down to us and give us what we want, whether relief from our current circumstances or riches or our best life now. That's what we want. We, want a, we don't want a Christ who, who may in his wisdom take the scalpel of the difficulties in our lives and use it to cut away the cancerous sin that plagues us. Now what we want is a Savior who would numb us and get us high on all the world has to offer so that we could be immune to our present circumstances and pain. Friends, salvation is far more than life enrichment. It's far more than simply making you a better person. It's far more than obeying a list of rules. It's far more than relieving you from the current shame and guilt of your sin. It's far more than Well, I mean, so many things that we often think about or look to. Because we we so often, we think that we've come to God in order that we might be delivered from our present circumstances. That somehow he's just going to make our life better now. We, We won't have to deal with pain. We won't have to deal with discomfort. We won't have to deal with inconveniences. Life will just be easy until we can be with him. That's not his intention. His intention in all that is to say that, look, I am with you. And here's how I prove it. Christ faced more than you. He did all that was necessary. And that is what you need to be saved. Friends, seeing is not believing. Hearing the truth and responding to it is. If Jesus had displayed his power by coming down from the cross, that would have been really fantastic. That would have been really sensational. But you would be dead in your sin with no hope of being ever being made alive. He did not save himself so that he could save others. Perhaps what I find most amazing about this passage is that even though they were mocking and deriding him, and even though every word was intended to dishonor and humiliate Jesus, every single Word that these haters of God said about the Christ was absolutely true. Did you think about that? Absolutely true. He is the Christ. He is the King of Israel. He could not come down from the cross to save himself. All of it was absolutely true. Jesus suffered excruciating, humiliating death on the cross so that you and I don't have to. His pain and suffering guarantees 
that one day there will be an end to ours. If you're plagued by chronic pain, it will be no more. He endured such humiliations so that we might have hope. That we're not bound by what people say about us. Practically, He gives us His body, the church, as a people who are to love the unloved, who help to bind up the brokenhearted, who help you to find your identity and your rest and your solace and your comfort and your satisfaction in Him. Not in the scornful words that people say about you. He suffered the shame of sin so that you might be freed from yours. That you don't have to carry this heavy weight of hidden sin. You do not have to be crushed by it. He was abused so that you might be free from the prison of your disgrace. In all these things, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And God in his wisdom and in his kindness towards us actually shows us first fruits of this, even here in this passage. Mark never drops names. Most people that you come across in the book of Mark, they're not named. But here in this passage, we have three people that are dropped out of nowhere. Simon of Cyrene and his sons, Rufus and Alexander. There's a Hebrew name, a Latin name, and a Greek name. The Gospels for all. These men were probably mentioned because they were known by Mark's original audience. Most likely the Church of Rome. Rufus may have well been that same one mentioned in Romans 16, verse 13. But in Simon of Cyrene, this was the first man who literally followed the call to discipleship to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. We also know from Luke that one of the reviling thieves next to Jesus would inevitably see his innocence and humbly ask Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And friends, if this man's pain and shame were not too great for Jesus, then neither is yours. There is nothing that he cannot forgive. Jesus endured pain and ridicule in fulfillment of Scripture to save others rather than himself. And friends, I pray that that would be yours today. Let's pray together. Father God, we will praise you for Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And God, I I pray that we would not be um, apathetic or indifferent towards his pain and humiliation. That instead, 
it would cause our hearts to weep within us when we think about the fact that the Son of God suffered such scorn and mockery, was derided, beaten, and suffered so heinously for our sin. God, I pray that this morning that truth would not just be words on our tongue or abstract concepts in our mind, but that it would be ours. And it would free us from our unbelief. It would free us from the shame that we bear about our sin, about the things that people have said about us, what they've done to us. God, I pray that we would find our identity in Christ who did not consider himself but gave himself up for us all. Lord, may we see and believe. May we trust in the words of truth that we have heard this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.